0: And thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. Philip Thallus is a founder and principal of Hill Thallus Architecture and Urban Projects, professor of practice at the University of New South Wales and a City of Sydney councillor. Philip has won more than 60 awards, commendations and competitions for architecture, urban design, planning, public domain and heritage projects, including the Sydney uh, Sydney Olympic Village competition and the Brangaroo East Darling Harbour redesign. Philip's advice and expertise have regularly been sought by government and private clients, and he's a past appointee to the Heritage Council of New South Wales. And to the Urban Design Advisory Committee reporting to the New South Wales Minister for Planning. He served for nine years as trustee of the Historic Houses Trust of New South Wales and has also sat on a number of design review panels and awards juries. Philip Thallis has been also made a life member of the Australian Institute of Architects in recognition of his ex- significant contribution to the profession through practice engagement with the Institute, Public Service, and his extensive involvement with architectural education. He joins us here today at Talking Architecture and Design. So welcome, Philip Thalas. How are you? Hi, Beck. Well, I feel tired <laughs> reading that. But, uh, you... <laughs> All that was missing was a knighthood, but but that could well be coming up. Oh, uh, don't, don't <laughs> I was going to say, um, how are you coping with everything, both, I guess, both professionally and personally with everything that's been going on?
1: Oh, look, certain things are a lot harder with COVID I mean obviously we're lucky we're not Melbourne um so I think that the thing that's hardest is uh, in fact teaching um teaching design at university is much harder by uh giving lectures is fairly easy the council's actually continued to operate reasonably except with far less direct contact with you know people in the city which is a, a real shame when you get do go into town hall it's a bit of a there's just no one there, which is very strange because it's been such a hive of activity the whole time. Isn't it? Been on council, so you do really miss that. Um, one of the joys of being a councillor is when you walk into town hall, there might be a, you know, school assembly, uh, the, the band's warming up, or um, you know, there might be setting up for a big ball or something, and uh, it's incredible to see the lights of the city firsthand, close mm-hmm. up every day. Okay. When I do go in.
0: When you do go in. Okay. Um. Yeah, it is. It is. It is strange. I've seen pictures of Melbourne that look very, very weird, very, very desolate and empty. I guess.
1: Well, I think that's it, sort of. Um, I remember the first time I went to Melbourne in the early '80s. On walking around the weekend, it was desolate then. And what I think we take for granted is, in fact, how we've got better at living in our cities and how much more vibrant our cities have actually become. And, you know, you only need to think of what Melbourne's usually like on the weekend or on a Friday night if there's a big game on at one of their stadiums. Yeah. The city is just uh, incredibly lively. But, you know, it wasn't always like that. Um, and, you know, that sociability, I think everyone's missing the sociability that's yeah. intrinsic to cities. And it'll come back. It will. It will.
0: OK, so in a speech uh, you gave to the, oh, at the 2019 um, National Trust Awards here in Sydney you are basically, what I could say, railing against what you described as the most voracious of booms to have gripped the city in in generations. More generally, uh, you said that public Sydney risks becoming privatised Sydney. We know that regardless of political persuasion, privatisation is deeply unpopular with the majority of citizens and constitutes a theft of public assets that would otherwise have been available to future generations. Why... Is this the case? And what do you think will be the end result of this most, as you put it, most voracious of booms?
1: Well, Benko, so I preface that by actually going through Sydney. Sydney's had lots of booms and lots of busts. Yeah. Um, uh, The famous bust in the 1840s, um, busts in the 1890s, of course, the Depression, of course, one in the 70s, um, one in the 90s and the like. There have also been lots of booms, um, of course, the gold rush, but even even perhaps before that with the, uh, open immigration, uh, certainly the 1880s was a big boom. The 1960s and 70s are the ones that are probably the most relevant, which actually did cause a lot of destruction. I think of some of the, the, the charming things in Sydney, certainly the city centre heritage, the beginning of motorways construction. But it just shrinks in comparison to the scale of change, and the, the rapid. Of change, and I think the brutality of a lot of the change. And while I really strongly commend this government for building quite a lot of public transport infrastructure, they have built actually a lot more road infrastructure. And there's no reason that any intelligent city anywhere in the world in 2020 should be building another motorway. Intelligent cities that take right. them down. We're building half a dozen. That's just okay. crazy. Okay. Um, and, also, wow. just, just the development also is just of a completely different scale to what Sydney's seen in the past. There was a plan. Correct me if I'm
0: wrong. To take down the Carl Expressway is that is that still on the on the on the
1: cards? Oh look, that comes up periodically. Um, it, it certainly has been changed. It's been uh, pedestrianised a little bit. Uh, been integrated with the city a little bit. Could be integrated with the city a lot more. It could be taken down. I think. No, at some point, something dramatic will happen with it, but um, probably not in the next decade. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. Are there triggers for these things?
0: Okay, fair enough. It, it's interesting you say that because you're right. It, it seems to come up periodically. It's, it's almost like it's, is is it going down the same path as the, as our. Um, uh, how do you know there's an election? Well, we talk about the very, uh, the fa- very fast rail to Melbourne. Is it, is it kind of going down that that way, where where it, it seems to come up every time there's there's some complaint about our overdevelopment?
1: Um, yes, I think that's fair. But also, when you look at the history of Circular Quay, probably, there's probably nowhere in Australia that's had more ambitious urban projects, some of them fully realised, than Circular Quay, mm. and of course the car itself. I mean, there'd been proposals for a city circle railway for 40 or 50 years before it was open, but then they just slipped the motorway on top of it. Uh, and in fact, the motorway almost got finished before the station. Um, you know, the motorway had only just been really rushed through after the war. Um, I think it was a very unfortunate thing for Sydney. It sort of brutalises it. But the answer may not be to pull it down. The answer may be to, in fact, turn it into a broad promenade or, in a set like a, a stage set for Sydney. Uh, you could turn it into a local street, but um, you could take it down. I mean, all of that. I'm not sure which is the best, but I can't see it um, just staying as a roadway.
0: I've got to say, if it turns into a street, it's, that is one beautiful view.
1: Um, it is. And the railway station's fantastic. The railway station's difficult to remove. Yeah. Yeah. True. The motorway, not so much. Yeah. Okay. I, th- I think, I think uh,
0: that some, uh, Paul Keating said the same thing as well, or similar.
1: Well, Paul and I didn't agree with very much on Barangaroo, he's actually the villain of the piece, but um, maybe we, we might agree on the car there you go
0: okay um so recently you were also quoted uh in, in another part of the press on the subject of building more social housing and this this um uh, idea or, or, or has, has been is becoming a lot more a lot louder i've noticed along uh, across a lot of publications um you said that we so often see advantage and privilege at the expense of disadvantage it's time our governments recognize that and, and try to balance the equation um can you tell me what you actually meant by that, uh,
1: and what was, if any, the, the latest response from the New South Wales government? I think that there is actually a little bit of a response from the New South Wales, and in fact, even the federal government. Um, we've got a long interest in 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 this Branco, that um, as, as uh, an architect, as a consultant, we were involved in the City of Sydney's twenty thirty um, plan, and we actually worked on the affordable and social housing part of that policy and did a demonstration project in Glebe, which is actually finally <coughs> built, it's realised, okay. um, not exactly as we'd it, but with the mix, it was redeveloping an older public housing, 1950s estate, um, which increased the number of public housing and added um, 20% affordable housing, the balanced market housing. There's been a huge, the problem has been, and I skipped over your, your public Sydney, privatised Sydney reference, but it's it's actually the same problem. The government has retreated over decades, and you can clearly point to, the Thatch and Reagan uh, ideology on this. It's retreated from a leadership role in the city, and that's that's apparent when you look at public works. Uh, It's apparent when you look at public housing. We used to build quite a good amount of social housing, um, which was actually for 30% band of society with less means. Because we've built so little for decades, we're down to about 10%, which has become social housing or welfare housing. Therefore, we need to add affordable housing. But governments have simply lost interest, um, with with few exceptions over decades. And so we have got a policy catch-up. And uh, it's really important that we don't simply just mine the public housing that the 1950s and 60s actually created for profit. It's important that we, in fact, retain public the public land, which is our land, and increase the quantum of uh, social and affordable housing. Now, if we use some market housing as one of the levers for that, I don't think that's a problem as long as the public ownership remains. There's no reason simply to have um, welfare housing or you know housing for the poorest 10% of society I and we could actually have as a public good housing all sorts of sectors of society. When I, I worked in Paris, in fact, the city of Paris, had four different levels of public housing. Okay. We haven't been very strategic about that. We haven't um, shown much public imagination. We haven't shown much economic good sense. I mean, Australians are very good at leveraging off housing. Why on earth is our government so, so poor at it? Why on earth didn't, when Paul Keating set up superannuation, why, why, wasn't, uh, why weren't public goods part of that equation? where, for instance, they had to reserve, say, 10% of their money as an investment in public housing of all forms. So I don't think we've done it very well. We've got a chronic shortfall. Uh, Some of our competitive cities, we talk about Singapore. Singapore has, can you believe it, 90% public housing. Really? 90% and all sorts of public housing. They're not so silly as to simply give it away or sell it, not to build it. Even Vienna has 60%. Uh, a lot of targets, the redevelopment areas in uh, the UK have got 20 to 30%. King's Cross in the centre of London has realised with 40% um, public and affordable housing. We are so far off the game when it wow. comes to housing affordability and it's not as if we don't have an affordability crisis of the first order. It's interesting you say that. I, I
0: published an article this, this morning written by Tone Wheeler, the architect, about the history of Daceyville. Yes. Now, well, that, that, that was, uh, it was fascinating. Now, that in, in, entire suburb was basically um, social housing, was it not?
1: Well, Daisyville is, in fact, it's, it's actually an even more complex um, history. So it was going to be a much, much larger area. that went for kilometres to the south. It was set up by the Housing Board of New South Wales that had been set up by the uh, housing reform of Fitzgerald, who was a state parliamentarian in 1912. In fact, most of the work they did is in the rocks. They didn't publicise that. They publicised Daisyville because it was a garden suburb and it's the only genuine garden suburb built in Australia. Um, but it, it also is just a, f- a fraction of what was intended to be built. Um, the Housing Board Architect Fogger, uh, but you've got to remember the Housing Board was only in existence from 1912 to 1926 and it wasn't until the early 1940s yes. that in fact we got the Housing Commission New South Wales. So we've had a very patchy record on public. Workers out.
0: Okay, so do you, so. What what I'm hearing is you don't think we're going to get another Daisy wheel anytime soon in terms of but social? No, they, look,
1: they, no, I'm I'm never completely pessimistic. There's plenty of reasons to be pessimistic, but you, you see when you look at you look at cities in the long time frame, not just in terms of electoral yeah. cycles, you see that the wheel turns. And one of the things about writing our book, Public Sydney, was that. You know, there's actually lots of good things that have been done in Sydney, as in all cities. We tend to focus on the negatives. Uh, We tend to overlook the positives. Daisyville is, even though it's a fragment of the overall conception, it's still fabulously good. And it's sustaining, and we need to learn of what's good. We need to recognise the things that have made a genuine contribution to our city. And that's where we get disappointed with governments and I think that's as a professionals, it's our responsibility to point out to governments and, in fact, to the people um, where there are highlights and where there are things that we can learn from and where there are things which we just simply take for granted you know, which are exceptional. And in public Sydney, you only need to go down to Circular Quay. On one headland, you've got the best work of engineering in the 20th century, the Harbour Bridge. On the other headland, you've got the best work of public architecture in the 20th century. Hey, what's the excuse for for such little ambition, when we can actually... No city in the world can beat that.
0: True. That, that, that's that very true, actually. So getting away from the past a bit, and, and still, I guess, on this theme, let's talk about the future. And you've done a little bit of work, I think, on, on, on where Sydney's going, from what I've heard, rumours. Sure. Um what do you think Sydney will look like, uh, let's say, let's say 30 years' time, let's say 2050? Or what would you like it to look like?
1: Well, I think we need to move away from this obsession with the car. Um, I think we need to move to a public transport city, we need to move to a much more environmentally sustained city. We need um, much more local um, cycling infrastructure, we need stations that actually really serve the community. We need to remember to put railway stations on mm-hmm. the new lines that we're building, they need yeah. to be. Um, Driven by operation, but driven by urban integration, Um, we need a much greener city. We need a city with significant uh, urban tree canopy. Um, We need a shaded city. We need a city that actually can sort of cope with the shocks. Uh, It's been very interesting how the scale of the city has changed with COVID. People are much more sort of uh, local, and you know the public space. In fact, the, the parks, the streets, the promenades, all of those things. Are things that people have really appreciated when they've got them, and having those public goods, I think, it should be one of the positives that comes out of COVID. Um, certainly, what uh, this boom has actually changed the skyline of the city in that all of a sudden you can see where Liverpool is because a couple of you know blokes have made a lot of money building thirty-story towers. You can see where Penrith will be soon because there's more thirty-story towers coming. Blacktown, you can go to Castle Hill. Pim- Burwood, you know, all of these places now have got sort of instant height. What they've got is density, but they don't yet have urbanity necessarily. And what we need are these sort of mixed, lively places with civic life. Of course, that attracts then commercial viability, not the other way around. And people want to go there and live there. They don't necessarily have to be high. I think it was the life of Cabramatta, but it's not high rise.
0: You mentioned mentioned, uh, COVID. Uh, I think it's 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 a it's a word we we can't seem to get away from oddly enough. So on that point, so I'm I'm reading and actually publishing a lot about um, so-called post-COVID design. Um, in your experience, do you think that this pandemic will change the way we design
1: buildings? And if so, in what way? I think buildings with lifts and um, without the use of stairs, buildings with, which are sealed without the opportunity for openable windows. I think. They need to be rethought uh, immediately. I think they're the ones, at the building scale, which uh, uh, really we need alternatives. If you, but if you look at the city, uh, I've got a mum who's turning 100 in a, a few weeks. Wow. She was, she was she was born, of course, in the Spanish flu. At least Spanish yes. flu didn't change cities at all. Didn't really change buildings at all. Uh, if you look at you know the bubonic plague, that you know, which was a big problem in various cities, it changed Sydney. Sydney had a bad view on it plague in 1900, killed 100 people. That changed Sydney because the government responded. The plague didn't change the city, it was the response, uh-huh. which was to resume the entire foreshore and build, rebuild the entire wharfage of Sydney and reserve land for the future Harbour Bridge. So what if you look at um, the, the um, TB um, problems in cities in the 19th century, the six city, um, European cities, in fact Sydney had it as well, they weren't going to change that except doctors discovered that there was a nexus and then governments acted by resuming those areas and having slum clearance. So the disease doesn't, the disease is one thing, it's what's the reaction to it, what's the actions generated by it and that's what it's too early to say But I'm hopeful the public space is one of them.
0: Okay, fair enough. Yeah, that is, that's, that's an interesting take actually of, um... Yeah, I actually didn't realise we had a bu- bubonic plague. We had a plague. number, but
1: the, but the worst one was 1900. It really? killed, I think,
0: 103 people. It's interesting. When you say bubonic plague, I'm thinking of the Middle Ages. but
1: <laughs> Well, it was, you know, rats off the ships. It was um, exactly yeah. the same conditions. And they actually barricaded the streets. They actually locked people into um, the port who lived there, even though most of the deaths were actually in the city centre. Oh, wow. Okay.
0: So um, you've been an architect. For a few years now, in fact, yes. you know, I think you've been. In a, um, you have more than like thirty years of um, of local and um, inter- something like that. Okay, no, no,
1: motor.
0: we we won't <laughs> we, we not <weren't, laughs> we 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 go too far into that. But of the local and international experience across, obviously, a, a broad spectrum of architecture and uh, and urban projects, would you say? And as, as an educator as well, because you, you you'd be seeing this also. Would you say that the 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 role of the architect has changed, um, or is changing? And, in, and and in what way has it changed? And is that or are these changes for the
1: better or, or otherwise? In terms of the profession, the changes are undoubtedly for the worst. Um, it's much more difficult practicing today than when when I graduated. Um, when I was a student, I could work in the government architects, which was very well paid with flexi time, doing some of the best public buildings in New South Wales. Oh, really? Um, that that's simply not possible today. Um, when i graduated there were actually remarkably few rules compared to today um it's like every decade there's double the amount of regulation um for half the the professional fees um and so the responsibility of the architect is much more or the liability more precisely in fact the responsibility is less Um, because we don't have the same control on building sites. And okay. It's commonplace when I graduated, when the architect ran the contract and could simply say that that's just not good enough, I'm rejecting that because really? I'm controlling the first spring. Wow. And that only happens, that degree of control, really only happens on houses commonly these days. And, you know, I think design, construct, DNC is has actually been a really damaging thing for the quality of architecture and the quality of construction and yeah. the quality of design, I think it's... actually. It, it, it delivers the inverse of its title. Um, I think the project management, um, um, it's not a discipline. Um, whatever they are, I don't think that's really added anything to the quality uh, of architecture at all, or the quality of the built environment in the cities or the way that they are realised. So I think, I think there are a lot of um, difficulties out there that you need to navigate in practice which weren't anywhere near... Uh, like that, thirty years ago. Of course, there's technology as well. I learned to you know, draw with a, with a pen on a drawing board. That doesn't happen anymore. Um, in fact, it, when I when I was a student, I remember the first word processors coming in. The degree of change in our working life. Yeah. I'm not actually that old, Franka. Um, it is quite is quite remarkable when you reflect on it, and then thinking forward thirty years, it's very hard to predict. What the situation will be in another thirty years' time, but people will
0: adapt. Of course they will. No, no, you're definitely not that old, Philip. And um, yes, I I, I hear you. Uh, Project managers aren't your favourite people, from what I can can pick up. Not not the design professions at all. (laughs) They're no friends of design. Getting onto getting onto about how we t- how you teach architecture and design as professor of practice at University of New York, South Wales, you would I, I'm assuming have some views on how the profession is being taught. What do you see uh, as some improvements that are needed for the next generation of architects to be dare I call it city ready, as it were?
1: I think one of the things that I've seen you know across the thirty plus years I've been teaching and since i graduated is there's less time at university i don't think they necessarily have a golden age but there's simply less contact time and there's less breadth to the education you've got a, a limited number of subjects um, to deliver architecture in. and so you really need to think about well, what's the core of the discipline what can you learn at university you can't learn elsewhere what what are the foundations to being you know, a good architect. And I think that that's what you really need to concentrate on and, and various courses have tried, various ways of um, constructing the course. But you can just see that universities are under challenge. Um, they've been turned into businesses in the last 20 years. I was listening to a podcast with Elizabeth Farrelly last night and she was very critical of the way that uh, universities have been turned into businesses. I don't think... Anybody can argue that that's not been the case. And they've been really turned into profit centres rather than uh, intellectual centres. And, you know, they're they're less enjoyable places for students as well. I mean, they're more blingy. They've got some fabulous buildings. Um, You know, Sydney University closed Manning Bar before COVID. I mean, the whole sort of student experience of being on campus, that's not like previous decades. Um, University fees and the like. Uh, limited time, limited contact, students having to work. I mean, it is really quite different. I think that we're shortchanging ourselves, um, to use an economic analogy, in terms of what our universities are delivering for society. And I think that's disappointing given that more people are going to university as well. I don't think
0: we've got the balance right. Read this morning, the Sydney Morning Herald, that the University of Sydney is going to have to um, lay off. I don't know how many, how many people. Quite a few people. I think hundreds, if not, if not more people, because of the lack of um, uh, international students. Uh a la like COVID. Now, it's, it actually goes into what you're saying. You know, they've they've, they've basically been turned into, in, into 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 a business rather than than
1: a, than, a, than a educational or a centre of learning. That's exactly right. And um, so, COVID hit universities particularly hard. What's what's disappointing. I'm, I'm not the only person saying this. I'm lots of people saying this. The universities, you know, have billions of dollars in assets. They you know, obviously the vice chancellors get paid millions of dollars with bonuses. Um, yet they're cutting their staff rather than looking at any other um, way of um, funding the money. I mean, they're just as bad as you know the, the worst sort of commercial enterprise in the way that they're operating. That's extraordinarily disappointing because it takes. You know, decades to build up a culture within a faculty and you can't simply just slash it um, and uh, expect the sort of um, the morale of staff and the sort of collegiate knowledge to, to survive and so I, I think that it's you know as they've been turned into actually extremely successful businesses you know the third or fourth biggest export business, as they have always been saying that um, I think that now, it's got a value, universities have a value to a society that goes well beyond an economic equation. And I think that that's not recognised by the federal government, in fact, not recognised enough by the universities themselves. And that's what is disappointing.
0: So you think perhaps our, our dalliance with an American-style education model hasn't been entirely successful?
1: Whether it's exactly an American style is, is an interesting one. Um, one. One positive of the American system is General education than the professional education. I don't think we're getting either the, you know, the general education in architecture, maybe not as good a professional education either. So, look, it's probably been a vexed question since civilization started. But, um, I, I think we're 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 not in the right place, and we're not then heading in the right direction from this place that we're in. I think that's a big problem, and it needs to be rethought. Not to say it can't be rethought, really, from the ground up. I mean, you know, the changes started with the so-called Dawkins reforms, which weren't reforms at all, um, quite regressive in many ways. In the early 90s, there's no reason that that reversed um, 30 years of um, policy, starting with Nancy's going through Whitlam, um, there's no reason you can't be reversed again.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's talk about Philip Thales, the man. Um, what drives you? And, we have to. <laughs> we, now, we, we, as much as you like, so, what drives you, and, and what is it that that uh, gets you up every morning? Um, and and if given the opportunity, you know, as as a, as a separate question, what would be the three top three buildings or structures that you would want to design straight away, if if there were no if there were no you know financial or other time constraints that you had to deal with. So let's start about what.
1: Let's a bit about your background and what actually drives you. Oh, look what gets you up every morning is the sunrise um, <laughs> or the sunshine. Um, I read today a friend put up a poster. Um, you know, the, the present should be viewed. Uh, the other many who are a present. I mean, you're alive. You get one life. What are you going to do with it? Um, how are you going to actually do something of meaning, of value, not just to yourself, but more importantly, as a member of society and goes to sort of the old-fashioned idea of the professions being, you know, ethical entities and acting in society's best interest to advance it. Up. That's definitely where I'm coming from in practice and in academia. And, in fact, it's uh, you know, sitting on council as well Is what contribution can you make to society, to advance the society, um, to leave the place better than you found it, if you can, and um, to resist the worst and, you know, promote the, the best uh So that that drives me uh, a lot. Um, uh, It certainly drives me in architecture. I remember seeing Harry Seidlick. I saw Harry Seidlick in many lectures, but I remember when he was well into his 70s, someone asked Harry, what's your best building? And he said, my next one, you know. And and that's actually one of the great things about being an architect is that every new commission is a source of optimism. It's a sort of new day and it's sort of pregnant with opportunity. Um, So... I don't know, Branko, we, we, we've been lucky in many ways in our work in that we do, a, you know, only as proper person practice, but we do a variety of work from whole pieces of the city to public spaces to all sorts of housing to public buildings and the like to heritage adaptation. So that's actually one of the joys of practice is that diversity and those interests. But certainly something like... Um, New form of social housing adapting an existing building would be a good one. Uh, A new form of a new uh, public space around the harbour would be a fantastic commission. A new piece of really fantastic infrastructure, public transport infrastructure with pedestrians and cycles. Wouldn't they all be good? But um, you know, we've actually got those sorts of projects as well, so it's actually in. These difficult COVID times, it's actually finding the next generation of those sorts of projects yes. that would keep me going for a long time. Okay, interesting.
0: I, I noticed that you know, in, in a lot of the questions, uh, the theme of the of the harbour has come up, either either wittingly or otherwise. There is that very much a connection between between the harbour and and, and how you see the how you see the city.
1: Well, the harbour goes all the way to Parramatta, but, you know, we're, we're actually doing a boardwalk on the Parramatta River, which is actually one of those types of projects. It's a new pedestrian cycleway connection coming in from the east, 500 metres, it's actually this beautiful S-shape over the river, right at the wharf. Um, but, it, but it's, in fact, the landscape more generally. I mean, I love the beaches and the coast just as much, but Western Sydney has this extraordinary system of you know, the mountains right there and the rivers that flow north up to Windsor and the creeks. Um, so we've always had um, a great landscape sensibility and been lucky throughout our career to work with really good landscape architects who've taught us so much. Um, and it's interesting today, people are talking about you know, working with country, which in many ways crystallises a lot of the ideas we've been um, trying to formulate. So that's a very interesting discussion, which has really come up on a number of jobs this year. And we look forward to trying to find a future idea of that um that is based on the sort of deep cultural knowledge of its landscape and place so what a fantastic thing to to sort of have as a sort of proposition to get you up in the morning that's a point philip Thallis, thank you very much for your
0: time that has been absolutely enlightening um, i really appreciate it and i hope um maybe one day we'll we will we'll again meet in 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 person uh, depending on what happens with the um with the world
1: well, indeed, I'm, I'm. I'm confident that'll be in the future. I'm not going to say in the near future, but let's hope so. And thanks very much for the opportunity, Branko. Always good to talk.
0: Thank you. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. Until next time, goodbye. I'm Branko Miletic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design. Brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The a and Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au.